reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, starting in verse 20 and moving to verse 30. Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everybody. I, I thank you for uh, your introduction, Paul, and uh, opening up me to the possibility that I could be run out of town as a result of, of preaching this passage. And I take some comfort in the fact that I'm not going to self-identify as the Messiah today. So, um, so the question I want to ask today, I'm, I'm going to pose it right at the beginning. Why accept a rejected prophet? Why accept and follow a rejected prophet? Arguably, this is one of the chief objections to early, Christian, early Christianity. It's one of those things uh, that's in the background of the New Testament. If there were newspapers at the time, it would be in the op-eds. If there were blogs, there'd be a lot of blogs about this. On one side, they'd say, this guy you follow, Jesus, he was tried by a legitimate body found guilty of sedition against Rome, guilty enough not to just, to just to be imprisoned, but guilty and dangerous enough to be killed. More generally, they're the ones asking this question. Why follow a rejected prophet? Can we just say, look, most people reject this guy. He's a loony, a whack job, out of his lane, out of his mind. Isn't that good enough? Shouldn't the court of public opinion hold sway on this? Christians on the other side would respond, yes, Jesus was undoubtedly condemned and crucified as a criminal, but it was a setup. And he is actually the prophesied Messiah. And more generally, they would say, aligning yourself with a true prophet that most people with fingers in their ears don't accept and follow is actually pretty smart. Following a true prophet is aligning yourself with God because a prophet 
is the voice of God, the mouthpiece of God. So first, a little review. What is a prophet? The word in Hebrew, navi, means someone who's called. In Greek, the word prophetes, a little more specific, it means a person who speaks on behalf of another. So the early church understood prophets to represent God's voice, to be the mouthpiece of God. Prophets are messengers, they're oracles, they're intermediaries between God and humans, mediators of the covenant. And against this idea that prophets only foretell the future, you see prophets most of the time calling people to remember the covenant and to hope. They're awakening a shared vision and they're stirring shared resistance to uh, apathy. For the early church, the resistance I'm talking about focused uh, on imperial Rome, but as the church gained power and public presence, the resistance at times focused inward on refinement. I think it's a big claim to speak for God, to say that we're speaking for God. It's a big claim to, to claim that we can direct people to do this or not to do that, to approve this and not approve that, and put the big G stamp on it, that big G being God has put his stamp of approval on this. But that's what prophets do. Prophets say we're speaking for God. This isn't me or my authority. This is the authority of God. Today's passage comes on the back of Jesus reading a scroll from Isaiah in a synagogue. Um, it's preached last week. And according to Luke's gospel, this is Jesus' inaugural sermon. There's no messianic secret here. Jesus comes right out and self-identifies as God's mouthpiece. He says, this guy, I'm this guy. And then he says, you've rejected me, and by implication, you have set yourselves out against God. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Jesus, according to John, uh, may have had a time in ministry in Judea before traveling to Gal Galilee to do ministry there. Um, and this is Galilee, Jesus' hometown. Um, Luke starts this story here, and I think it's strategic. He frames the gospel in a very particular way. Uh, the story starts with Jesus's rejection, um, and the, the, it ends with Jesus's, well, it, I, I mean, after the, the resurrection isn't Jesus's rejection, but the crucifixion is. There's a frame there, a book ended, is Jesus's rejection. The message is Jesus is the eschatological prophet promised by Isaiah, whose fate is the same as all the other prophets. Israel rejects her prophets. In order to correctly understand this situation, I think we have to situate ourselves in first century pews. Um, the first thing to note here is that actually no prophetic book had been written since the 6th century BC. Why? What was happening between 500 BC and the birth of Jesus? As a nation state, Israel becomes taken over by the Persians and then the Greeks, and then they have a century of, of independent rule, and then they become taken over by the Romans. During this second temple period, so that's, that's this whole period starting in 516 when the temple was rebuilt and until 70 AD when the, the temple was destroyed again, I, I think the scope of prophecy becomes pretty truncated, narrowed, um, and even institutionalized. Um, the work of prophets became very closely associated with musical 
liturgical and expository worship in the temple. It included things like the exposition and preaching of existing prophetic texts. It meant reflecting on ritual life and the refinement of the sacrificial system. Apart from John the Baptist, who we know that religious leaders didn't really want to place a verdict on for fear of the people, sanctioned prophecy was pretty limited and pretty rare. Um, there's a reason why people keep saying of Jesus, this guy's different. He teaches with authority. We've never heard anything like this before. The assumption that they were all working under is that the age of prophecy had ended, or at least it had paused. Um, until such a point when in the future there'd be a prophet like Moses or Elijah who would be risen up to help the faithful uh, escape the cataclysmic day of the Lord. And then would what would follow would, would be as prophesied in Joel, where there would be many people prophesying. But this whole time of prophecy, it had paused. And so people were skeptical. And they indicted false prophets with a vengeance. So Zechariah, one of the last Old Testament prophets, he wrote this. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their parents will stab them, the one who prophesies. It's not a welcoming context for testing a hunch or for vocalizing an intuition. In summary, when we look at the, the landscape, the first century years, people had an expectation for a prophet like Moses, for one like Elijah to come, signaling the day of reckoning with God, and there was lingering hope that this would happen. And Jesus, in this context, literally just read a passage about the Messiah, self-identified as that Messiah, which, once you connect the dots, means that he's saying that the day of the Lord is near and that he's the one sent by God as the mouthpiece and as the hope for the faithful, as the mouthpiece of God um, and hope for the faithful. So the text tells us a couple things about the listeners. So initially, they received Jesus well. Verse 22 reads this way. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They were talking among themselves and their ears were perked up. They were amazed, taken back, greatly surprised, even astonished. Their appraisal was positive. But just as quickly as the compliments came, they ask, but isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, they're trying to situate Jesus. They're trying to put him in his place. He's a local boy, the son of a day laborer and a day laborer himself. They imagine they knew all about him and his family, whereas they actually knew very little about who he really was or the mission of God's kingdom and his prophetic task. Um, and Jesus answered their appraisal and puts a few things on their lips, actually. He, he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you do, did in Capernaum. So he reads their hearts. He sees their gossipy murmuring. He understands they've made a judgment. They're unconvinced by his stories. Um, if Jesus is going to say that this is the year of the Lord, 
the Lord's favor and suggest God's spirit is on him to do these things, if he's the one going to self-identify as the Lord's anointed one, anointed one literally meaning Messiah, if he's calling himself the Messiah, they're making these connections in real time, then he should prove himself, show signs. Physician, heal yourself is a phrase that can actually mean heal your own or heal your own people, your own hometown. And I think that's what this means here. They're saying, come on, prove yourself. Prove beyond any doubt that you've got the goods. Uh, and, and just as soon as Jesus has, had, had read these thoughts, he tells them that he won't do it. Why? Because he knows that they've already rejected him. Here, Jesus self-identifies as the prophet in the vein of Elijah and Elisha, who, let us not forget, administered outside of Israel proper uh, to Gentiles because of Israel's own wickedness. In the time of Elijah, um, a man called Obadiah hid a hundred prophets of God in two caves. And why did he do that? Because Ahab, the Hebrew king, and his wife Jezebel had genocide on their mind. They didn't want to hear from God's prophets, and so they hid. Hear Jesus' words. He says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of, region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Elijah and Elisha their ministry prefigures the prophetic ministry of Jesus in many respects. And most notably, I'd say that they worked miracles outside of their hometowns and even outside the bounds of Israel. Um, their ministry to non-Jews, I think we say, prefigures the, the spread of the gospel outside of the land of Israel. Um, you may recall the words of the widow of Zarephath when Elijah raised her son from the dead. She said, now I know you're a man of God and the, the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. So, I mean, she, she's a convert. She, she trusts that this is God's prophet. She says, you've convinced me that you're a true prophet. I think by quoting this, Jesus says, I'm not called to my hometown. And by implication, I'm not going to perform miracles and signs to convince you of who I am. He's not saying I can't do it. He's not saying his miracle working power gets shriveled up like a prune in the absence of uh, unshakable faith. He's saying I won't do it because I haven't been sent here to do it. God sent me elsewhere. Uh, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said the wind blows wherever it, wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell me where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus is saying that I've been called elsewhere. He's saying I, I have not been called to do miracles here to convince you of who I am. And so the way they respond, I think, says a lot about what's going on. Um, in a spirit of indignation, we read that everyone has heard about enough. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They'd reached their conclusion. Uh, it was a, a, a devolution from amazement to horror, from uh, enthusiasm to violent rejection. They conclude that Jesus is a false prophet, that Jesus is a false prophet. So they initiated what they'd been instructed to do from Moses and from Zechariah. They sought to put Jesus to death. 
Deuteronomy 13 instructs, if a prophet or dreamer says, let us follow other gods, that prophet or dreamer must be put to death. And we already read in Zechariah 13, on, on, on that day of the Lord, if anyone still prophesies um, falsely, it, the, the implication is, they, they must die. And, and it sets off the, their parents to be the ones to do it. Um, the synagogue crowd did not look for Mary or Joseph. They took it into their own hands. We read, um, however, that he walked through their midst. This wasn't his time, and he walked through their midst. Um, so I want to ask that original question that I asked. Why follow a rejected prophet? Jesus is rejected here in this context. Um, why follow a rejected prophet? And I think it's actually a false dilemma. I set up a false dilemma because there's never been an accepted prophet. Prophets are seldom popular. You think of John the Baptist, who speaks out against the, the local ruler, Herod Antipas's unlawful marriage, and he's beheaded not long after that. It didn't put a sock in his mouth, he put an apple in his mouth. You, you read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, it talks about the martyrdom of some prophets. Um, and I'll read, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And I think that sums it up, right? The world was not worthy of them. So why follow a rejected prophet? It's a wordplay. It's a false dilemma. It assumes that a prophet is acceptable only if they're accepted. It assumes that the world naturally cultivates a good, fair democracy, which answers this question objectively, without any distortion. Why follow a prophet at all? Um, prophets stick their neck out. Prophets rock the boat. Prophets aren't the sort of people you want to invite to a dinner party. Prof prophets don't accept things as they get handed um, them. The culture, its values, its assumptions, its exercise of power. Prophets critique. And because of this, prophets are hated. The question really is, why trust a prophet? Um, because if you're aligning yourself with God, God sometimes speaks through individuals. So how do we come to trust a prophet? And I think the Bible actually gives us some criteria for testing a true versus a false prophet. I mean, there's the criteria in the messenger, their character, their submission to God. There's criteria in the message. In the case of predictive prophecy, it's whether it comes true or not, uh, whether it conforms with the rest of the biblical witness. I think there's a base level condition for discernment, which is a spirit of repentance and dependence on God. I don't think we need to assume that just because Jesus was rejected, that people used meaningful measures in their rejection of him as a prophet. The people that rejected Jesus were wrong. They were either foolish, rash, or they acted with prejudice or false measures. Um, Jesus truly is the fulfillment of everything God promised in the Old Testament. Um, and his spirit serves as a witness inside us testifying to it. So, let me conclude by reflecting on a moment in the life of the church and on the lives of a few individuals in particular. Jesus' ministry is framed by Luke by two unsuccessful attempts to snuff out the prophetic ministry of Jesus. The first, Jesus doesn't submit to because it's, it's, his work on earth isn't done. 
Um, that's this that we're talking about. Um, Jesus does not submit unto death in this situation. The second, Jesus does submit um, to, um, but human execution in this context is not the final word because it cannot overcome the power of God which raised Jesus from the dead. The ministry of, of Christ is framed by the rejection and dishonor given him by the Jews, his own people. And the undercurrent of the story here is that those who reject Jesus set themselves against God's Messiah and the hope of the world. And there is hope in this world that God is making things new, all things new. Um, so, on this occasion, in this story, when Jesus is rejected, God hadn't called the other disciples to follow him. Surely Christ's own rejection foreshadows the rejection his followers face. To be a follower of Christ is to join the undercurrent of hope which many in this world reject. In the life of the church, God calls humans to the task of ministry. In our church today, celebrates God's work in the individual um, lives of four people responding to God's call in their life in ordination to ministry. Ashley, Bob, Gail, Rob. Um, I wish I could promise that inside the church you will be constantly accepted and honored for extending the hands of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the mind of Christ to those you serve. The truth is living in light of God's reign is work with delayed gratification but it's work that comes with a promise. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Paul found purpose in this. Um, in Colossians, he wrote this. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I became its servant by the commission God gave me to fully proclaim to you the word of God, the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. And this is now turned to everyone and not just the people getting ordained today. I wanna to say that if there comes a day in ministering in following Christ, where you feel rejected, know that the one who calls you was rejected by those he was called to serve. To serve the church is to join the undercurrent of hope in the finished work of Christ, which extends to the ends of the earth. Jesus' message was to go, as Elisha and Elijah did, to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. The work of the church sometimes means you have to be a prophet. It means you have to stick your neck out. It means if God puts a word on your heart, it means you should speak it. And that's what I extend to you today, a challenge that sometimes we're called to be prophets. Leaders as well um, are called sometimes to suffer. But we have a great precedent of one who suffered before us and promises us great hope. So let me pray. For us. Lord, we celebrate today. Uh, it's a, a good day where people are responding to your call on their lives. Um, we're excited for them when we know that you, um, yeah, you have prepared good works for 
this whole church and for, for them in the ministries that you're calling them. Um, so we celebrate coming alongside them and we count the cost of what it means to follow you. Um, and we know that even though you are rejected by the world, you are cherished um, by your church and by, um, yeah, by us. So we, we do come to you um, and submit uh, this ordination to you in, in Christ's name. Amen.